One of the great dangers for those of us who are regularly in a church on a Sunday morning is we come to this time of year where we celebrate the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's just another day. And that's why um, I put together in these weeks leading up to Easter morning um, a special sermon series called At the Foot of the Cross as a way of trying to remind all of us on a weekly basis the centrality and the power of that historical event when Jesus Christ literally was nailed to the cross and died for us. And part of the power of it is seen in those that were literally there at the foot of it. Literally those who stood around it, looked up at him. There were some incredible things that began to happen even before he died. Now last week we looked at Pilate. Um, Last week we examined him because we started there because he's really the one that was the instigator of Christ going to the cross, from at least from a human point of view anyway. He was the one that sent him there. Now we know it was God's will and God's hand that was in that from eternity past planned it already. But we know Pilate himself was literally judged by what people call the trial of Jesus, which is really a trial of Pilate. And so it's good for us to look at these things and review these events and see it from different people's eyes that were literally there and the powerful impact that it had on them. And so this morning, we're going to take another person's perspective. Very short, very, uh, in just a couple sentences, and yet the power of what that does for each one of us. So before we look into God's Word, let's pray together. Father, My words are not going to cut it. It's your word that has the ability to change our hearts. And so, Father, as we now worship you by careful, thoughtful study of your word, Lord, would you change us? Father, surprise us because we weren't expecting you to take us somewhere this morning that you end up taking us. You end up speaking to an area that we didn't think you needed to speak to, but we need it. So, Father, would your Holy Spirit's teaching ministry be very powerfully active here among us. Give us ears to hear. Let us be good soil uh, that the seed of your word can be planted deeply in and not be ripped away, not have shallow roots, not be overwhelmed by the cares and concerns of this world, but grow down deep and bear fruit upwards. Father, I pray that from my heart. pray that for all of us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Back in 1951, a pamphlet was published. It was called The Gift of Life. And it contained traditional advice about human sexuality and about the sanctity of life. So in the very first page, it states that the gift of life is shown to us with the birth of each new baby. Then on pages 21 and 22, the authors inform readers, presumably presumably the average American teenager at that time, that if one of the new male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins. 
So you can see from the cover behind me that uh, what we have is a picture of a typical American family at that time, a happy family, mom, dad, you know, some children, and apparently they're leaving church. It's all pretty standard stuff for the 1950s kind of era booklet until you turn to the back page and see the publisher's information distributed by Planned Parenthood. Oh my, how things have changed. Unless you are a modern-day Rumpelstiltskin, the changes that have occurred and continue to occur within the family structure in America are absolutely shocking. For example, back in 1960, the stereotypical family of dad working outside the home, mom being in the home, caring for two kids, that represented 60% of all households. Today, it reflects less than 23%. Trends indicate that all children born since 1990, six out of ten of them will live within a single-parent home at some time before they reach the age of 18. Children who do live with both parents record in surveys that they spend less than 30 minutes a week in meaningful conversation with mom. And they spend less than 15 minutes of meaningful conversation with their father. And the family unit? it's behaving quite differently today than it has in the past. For example, we are experiencing and spending less time together. Meals are less likely to be eaten in the home as a shared family experience. Vacations are shorter and less likely to include everyone. Add to that multiple television sets, DVRs, cables, and satellite, tablets, smartphones. The family often splits up to watch different programming or to play video games in separate rooms. So it shouldn't surprise us at all when the Barna Research Group, after one of its national surveys, makes the following observation. They said, one outcome of the changing nature of family relationships is that we are seeking emotional gratification from sources outside the home. Deep relationships are earnestly desired by more and more Americans, but as the home deteriorates, we are driven to seek consolation and appreciation, encouragement and understanding elsewhere. If we took our own survey right here in this room this morning... How many of us would we find have come from splintered family backgrounds caused by divorce or alcohol or by abuse? How many here battle feelings of loneliness because you are the only Christian in your extended family? How many fight a sense of balance because you were raised or are in a blended family? Or how many struggle with loneliness having moved here to Temecula, but none of your extended family are anywhere near you. See, the research data, whether it comes from Barna or any other source, about the American family, 
It's not cold social observations about others, you know, out there, but rather we, every single one of us in this room, are living statistics. We understand the pressure to go outside the home to find emotional gratification. So are, where are we going? Where do we go to find consolation and appreciation and encouragement and understanding? Where do we turn when we feel lonely, when we feel isolated? Well, grab your Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 19. Let's continue our study of being at the foot of the cross, back to John 19 where we finished last week. And let me read verses 16 through 18 and then we'll jump on further down to verse 25. But let's begin with John chapter 19, starting at verse 16. So, Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified Jesus, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now jump down to verse 25. And standing, or so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, it's interesting. This chapter in these verses records a unique event on the day when Jesus was crucified. It's unique in that the other three gospel writers do not include this in their recording of these same events. Because evidently, there at the foot of the cross stood one of the disciples, In other words, of all of the men in Jesus' inner circle of 12, only one of them came to watch the crucifixion. Now, Now think about that. Wait a minute here. Didn't this disciple the night before run away with all of the others? So why is he here? I mean, who is this guy? Well, this is John, the writer of this gospel account of the life of Jesus. Now, remember, he had a brother... Do you remember his brother? James. And they, were, and they were fishermen. In fact, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them the Sons of Thunder. Doesn't that sound like a professional wrestling tag team? <laughs> okay, so what do we know about John that will help us here? Well, like I mentioned, these brothers were fishermen. So they were used to hard manual labor out in the sun. The gospel accounts reveal that John was a man of determination and enthusiasm. He was a man of directness in purpose and directness in aim. Yet, we also know he was a man of profound spiritual sensitivity. He was following John the Baptist before he was ever introduced to Jesus. And so that spiritual side of him made him a good listener and a careful observer of what was going on around him. We also know that John, in one sense, was the premier disciple. Now, not in leadership of others, but in intimacy with the Lord. Remember in the upper room, what we just celebrated 
uh, what that we call it the Last Supper. He had the place of intimacy and closeness with Jesus. He was the one close to closest to Jesus. In other words, he was probably Jesus' closest friend. In fact, it's interesting, in sincere humility, when he wrote, writes down his experience here in these pages, he never identifies himself by name, but rather, how does he call himself? The one whom Jesus loved. All this means that as an uneducated Galilean fisherman, life was simple. Life really wasn't all that complicated. So sure, the night before, he had run like all the others had run because they were scared they were going to die. But today, today his friend is being horribly crucified on this cross. And so that's where he should be. That's what you do when a friend is in trouble. Even if you can't fix it, even if you can't rescue him, you show up and you stick by them. So John is there, watching during those pain-filled hours as his friend is slowly tortured to death. And he stands there, as we see in the text of John 19, with four women. In fact, according to Mark chapter 15 and verse 51, this group of women had been traveling along with the rest of the disciples, caring and ministering to Jesus' practical needs. Okay, now back to chapter 19 and verse 26 and verse 27. Watch how something incredible happens here. Jesus, on the cross, sees his own mother standing there. And though he is painfully dying, notice he moves to meet her needs. John, will you take care of my mother? Of course, Lord. That's what friends are for. And right there at the foot of the cross, a new set of relationships is formed. And right there at the foot of the cross, we can see a powerful truth that's at work for us. Because what is given to us in vivid color, better than the newest high-tech display on on your tablet or a phone, is this gripping truth. Loyalty to the Savior is seen in loyalty to His people. See, when we stand at the foot of the cross and we gaze deeply at at what God did for us in His Son, Jesus, it radically changes our commitment to other believers because we suddenly realize we're not there at the foot of the cross alone. But rather, we're standing there alongside others who have been deeply moved and changed also. Because through the cross, our Savior's not only changed us, He's changed the way we relate to others around us. I mean, it's almost as if Jesus looks at me and says, Rick, gaze deeply at what I've done for you at Calvary. Now, do you see that other person over there? You're in the same family. Take care of each other. Our loyalty to the Savior is seen in our loyalty to His people. So can we slide to a stop for a moment and kind of think about that for a minute? Let's consider the impact of that truth for for us. Because it has tremendous impact in the way we live. I mean, for example, it impacts my relationships 
corporately, with the, with a large group. Again, it is so easy for us, if we're not careful, to start focusing, or it's, it's true for any local church, not just us, but any local church. It's, it's easy if we're not careful to start focusing on church as the buildings or the programs or even on who the pastor is. But the New Testament authors constantly reinforce a, a focus that the church is all about its people. One of the most important facts of who we are as a group of Jesus followers is that we are now family to each other. Can I just really be honest? For many, many years, I kind of bristled at the idea when believers spoke to one another and called each other brother and sister. I did for years. In recent years, all of a sudden, and you know, that is so authentic about who we really are. And since we live in a culture where the family unit is so decimated, let's remember a couple things about a healthy family. A healthy family has at least three positive characteristics to it. There are more, but let me give you three really core ones. For example, in a healthy family, there is a high level of commitment to one another. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 19. Here's the basis for that high commitment level. Paul tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, some of you might think, wait a minute, Rick, just a couple of weeks ago you were telling that I am a stranger and alien. I am a stranger and an alien to the world, but not to each other. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now notice the start of that verse, the first two words. It begins with, so then. So then pushes us back to the verse before that of what Christ did for us. What's verse 18 say? For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, what occurred at the cross makes us God's people. We have one Father, and that means we've been placed into the Father's household. Literally, we are in His family. His family. So it is Jesus Christ who is the common bond that literally unites us all together. He is the one who's changed our relationship to each other, and now we are family as it was originally designed to be before sin warped it all. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1 states it like this and describes the special nature of our commitment. Keep on loving each other as, what's the next word? Brothers. A term describing family. So how are we doing in giving that kind of a high level of commitment to each other? A third grade Sunday school teacher was giving a Bible lesson on the Old Testament command, honor thy father and mother. And then she asked her group of kids, now does anyone know a commandment for brothers and sisters? And a little girl shot her hand up. She said, yes, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Why is that little girl's observation so accurate? Because relationships within the family can get messy. But healthy families overcome 
that messiness by giving a high level of commitment to each other. That's the first characteristic of healthy families. Let me give you a second one to chew on. And by the way, that first one blends over very quickly into the second. And that is healthy families, they show love for each other in practical ways. One of my favorite scenes from Winnie the Pooh is where Pooh Bear is standing on a bridge and he has thrown a stick upriver and then he's walked to the down uh, current side and is looking down in the river waiting for his stick to come under the bridge. And instead of his stick, here comes Eeyore the donkey floating on his back with his legs sticking up in the air. And the following conversation occurs. Pooh, did you fall into the river Eeyore? Eeyore, silly of me, wasn't it? Pooh, is the river uncomfortable this morning? Eeyore, well, yes, the dampness, you know. Pooh, you really ought to be more careful. Eeyore, thanks for the advice. Pooh, I think you're sinking. Eeyore, Pooh, if it's not much, too much trouble, would you mind rescuing me? And then, as Eeyore is being pulled out, he says, I'm sorry to be such a bother. Pooh, don't be silly, Eeyore. You should have said something sooner. Doesn't that sound a little too familiar to how we often respond? We give analytical advice instead of a helping, understanding, gracious hand. Yet John, who was there at the foot of the cross, also comments in a later letter, 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. He says, dear children, family language, family vocabulary, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In other words, just don't say you love others, but when it's family and there's a need, then show up with your toolkit, get out the checkbook, stay up late and listen to their hurts. And why, why do we do that kind of stuff? Because we're family. We're family. Third healthy characteristic of healthy families is that they are sensitive to each other's needs. Sensitive to each other's needs. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and verse 10. Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the what? Family of believers. In other words, we are going to be given opportunities. Grab those opportunities. See, to be the church of Jesus Christ, he wants us to be a healthy family expressing that practical love and support and sensitivity to each other. And, and then we reach out and, and meet those deep needs in each other's lives. So, someone has written this. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit that there is to the fellowship that Jesus wants to give his church. It's an imitation. 
dispensing liquor instead of grace. Escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others, or they don't even really want to tell others. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. I believe that Christ wants His church to be unshockable, a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. And yet too often our churches miss that mark. And that's why loyalty to our Savior is seen in loyalty to his people, and it impacts my relationships corporately. But there's another way in which the implication of loyalty to the Savior is seen in loyalty to his people, and that is it goes to a deeper level, and there is that impact on my relationships individually. Because the cry of people today is for someone just to love them. Our Savior sends us out not to fix others, but to love them. And there are three biblical commitments on a personal level if we're going to be serious about developing our ability to love others well. Hang on to your seats. Here's the first one. I can't hold on to my independence and at the same time help pull someone out of their isolation. Christ turned to Mary and said, Here's your son, John 19. Then he turned to John and said, Here is your mother. Notice, John didn't say, Wait a minute, Lord. What about my plans? What about my future? You're saddling me with her. I've got the right to have a life. We don't see any of that. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Which means that when we look at the cross, we see love hanging up there. Something changes in me then and allows me to set aside my own independence to try to reduce someone else's isolation. So when I consider what Christ has done for me, how can I and, I, and how loved I am because of that demonstration, how can I then refuse to give my time? How can I refuse to open up my home? How can I continue to ignore the loneliness and isolation that someone in my spiritual family is feeling and has? The answer is I can't. At least if I'm sincere in following Jesus. So I can't hold on to my independence and at the same time help pull someone out of their isolation. Wow. Let me give you a second commitment biblically to deal with, and that is if I'm going to love others well, I can't wait to be loved before I express love. I mean, after all, did God wait to love us until we became lovable? 
Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, did Christ's love feel good for him when he was hanging there on the cross? No. He hung there in pain. He was lonely. He's rejected, the Scriptures tell us. People walked by and mocked him for who he claimed to be. But he still loved. Folks, that is a stubborn love that doesn't wait to give itself away. It doesn't wait until that other person is deemed worthy or responsive or even appreciative of what we do. Christ didn't wait, therefore I can't wait for someone else to take the initiative. I can't wait to be loved before I express love. There's a third commitment I think biblically we can give to each other on an individual basis, and that is my model of loving others well in this family is Christ, not what others do. Again, John, who wrote this and was standing there and had this experience of what Jesus said to his own mother and then included him in, he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. As and since God so loved us. But isn't it easy to take our cues from our peers? We watch others carefully. What are they doing? And then we let that set the level for our compassion and our sensitivity by what they're doing. And if that's our model, it'll be a disaster sometime down the road. Trust me, it will. Because the only person worthy of being the model for us, and the way that I'm involved in the lives of the members of this church is Jesus Christ. In seeking to love others well, the only question worth asking is what would Jesus do in this situation? What would he do? Ephesians chapter 1. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved Children, see, see, the, see how the family vocabulary keeps popping up here? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Okay, so here's the question that's been haunting me all this week. Am I growing in my ability to love others well? What am I giving away to others? Even though there is a history in my background, like there probably is in every single one of your backgrounds, of being let down and disappointed and frustrated by other members of the body of Christ. Can you relate to the elderly man who was laying in the hospital with his wife of 55 years sitting next to him? He said, is that Ethel, is that you at my bedside again? She whispered, yes, dear, it's me. He softly said to her, remember years ago when I was in the veterans hospital? You were with me then. I remember. And you were with me when we lost everything in the fire? I was there. And Ethel, when we went through the bankruptcy, you were with me then too. The man sighed and said, I tell you, Ethel, you are bad luck. And most of us struggle. 
Most of us struggle when we attempt to be involved and engaged authentically in a local church because we're suddenly thrust into messy relationships. See, we, we, we are so idealistic, aren't we? We want everything to be perfect. And it's not. And in so many ways, it feels like relationships within the church are harder than our relationships with those that don't know Jesus outside of it. At least that's the way it feels. Maybe this will be of help. Uh, writer and national public radio commentator um, Heather King is a recovering alcoholic and just a couple of years ago wonderfully came to Jesus Christ. She has a blog, and she reflected on her life experience during this fascinating transition that, it came, that came as spiritually she gave her life to, to Jesus. Listen, listen carefully. My first, she's talking about being engaged in a local church. She says this, my first impulse was to think, I don't want to get sober and worship with these nutcases. They're boring. They have, a, they have different politics. I don't like their taste in music, food, or books. She says, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are just like us. She finishes by saying, but we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the church is the best place and the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we're hard-pressed to say, which is the bigger scandal of God that He loves us or that he loves everyone else. And that's why loyalty to our Savior is often seen in our loyalty to his people. And right here, right now, right here in this very place, our Savior wants to understand, wants us to understand that the model for our loving relationships has been nailed up for all to see. And he wants us to stand at the foot of the cross and hear him ask, do you see the other people in this room? Take care of them for me, will you? Sure, Lord. That's what friends are for. Father, you know that I have so far to go myself in learning how to love well. My own flesh keeps getting in the way, along with my pride, my self-centeredness, my self-servingness. until I stand at the foot of the cross like John did and gaze at what you've done. And then it all begins to change. And something inside me then also wants to say, sure, Lord, that's what friends are for. Because we're now family.
Father, may we never ever get over the incredible love that's been given to us. And may it so overflow that we can't help but give it away to others. Father, help us to see and grab those opportunities to especially do good to those in the family. May we practice living in loving relationships with each other that we're going to spend eternity also doing. But may we also realize we're not the only one at the foot of the cross. There are wonderful brothers and sisters, broken and messed up, rebellious, idolatrous, just all, the list goes on and on, just like we are. And yet you've wonderfully, wonderfully brought us into the family. Thank you. Thank you. Change our hearts so that we give that kind of love to one another that you've given to us. Oh, that's our prayer in your son's most gracious and understanding name. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.